1: We're joined today by another special guest who comes from the other side of the coin, the operator and the investment and executive side of oil and gas. Matt and I are here today with a man they call Mr. Hot Take of the Day, DRW, a.k.a. David Ramson Wood. David, for those who don't know, which should be surprised, is an author and principal at Prevail Energy. David, how are you doing this beautiful day, man?
2: I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Excellent. Good to have you.
1: And it's too bad this isn't live or on video because David looks so fresh today. He got a new haircut. He looks good. He's shaved. You know, he's he's dialed in. And and so it's an honor to have him looking the way he does for our for our podcast today. So thank you for doing all of that just for us.
2: Well, you gotta gotta get high and tight. Plus, I had a lot of gray hair yeah. in my beard and my hair, and it, it was causing me some stress. So I had to go. I had to go get it all cut off so I could look younger again.
1: So now that you're like pretty much, you know, semi-retired, is that like the most stress you have in the day or like what gives David Ramson wood stress?
2: I mean, to be perfectly honest, Justin, the thing that stresses me out the most is what's going to happen with our country, which I know is not a topic necessarily for this conversation. And it's a larger one, but I'm deeply deeply concerned about where our country is in two years just based on the fiscal response that we've had to the coronavirus. And and everyone continues to say, stimulate, we need stimulus, we need stimulus, we need more cash in the system, but everyone is forgetting what the trade-offs are. And I think we've seen with climate change discussions and wind and solar, it's all well and good to say, you know, wind and solar are the answer, but number one, they forget the carbon footprint that goes into making those devices. And number two, the trade-offs of when we have to replace those, recycling, taking them down, you know, et cetera. The world is about trade-offs. And so the thing that causes me the most stress is the choices that were made by politicians to shut down the economy. I think we'll have, we're on a crash course with disaster. And that causes me a lot of stress.
1: Sure. And again, I think there's, that's something that you've obviously voiced before. And, and again, I mean, it's, it's a valid point. So I guess tying that into... You know, talking about oil and gas and, and more specifically, oil field service companies. Obviously, oil and gas has been challenged is probably, you know. It's
2: a good word for it. Yeah, is it? I'm trying to are say you, like, well, are you feeling challenged? Feeling
1: challenged. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's putting it lightly. We've been challenged. I mean, obviously, since the shale revolution, things have, have gone a while. While it's helped, I would say in certain aspects, it's definitely made things challenging In others. Oil field services companies, I mean, since the most recent downturn, well, I'd say since 2014, it's been one long downturn-ish. But yeah, you know, we've we've been up against, you know, lower rig counts and you know, people trying to do more with less. And so, you know, before we talk more of that specifically, I'd like for you just to kind of give your perspective on when things were going quote unquote good, how you saw oil field service companies, you know, helping the oil and gas. Operators get to where they were, and then how that's kind of evolved into where we're at now, and maybe some things on how oil field service companies can can thrive in today's market. And I know maybe it's maybe you just say, Well, they can't, but but certainly there, there's certain things I think we can do as industries. And and for us personally here at AES, I think we've done a fun, an awesome job positioning ourselves. To withstand what's coming, hopefully, but yeah, I'll kind of let you, you know, take the stage and just discuss a few of those topics, and then we can ask questions along the way.
2: Yeah, so so there's a couple of just prefaces I wanna I wanna put out there. So if you go to 2008, and, and many of you will were young, but if you remember 2008, the world economy ground to a halt, and the primary driver obviously was banks had been lending money, printing money in a way, but different than the Fed Reserve, to loan money to house owners so that they could all own houses. And the favorite, my favorite scene in the big short is when Steve Carell is getting a lap dance from the stripper and he finds out that she has five houses and a condo. And she's like, it's a bubble, the whole thing's coming down. And because of that, the the, the world shut down and the only industry at that time that was working was oil and gas. You know, the world thought we were gonna be short natural gas in the early 2000s. We thought we were gonna be short oil. We found the Bach and we found the Barnett, we found horizontal, we found technology, we really enhanced fracture technology. And so at the same time as the world imploded, the only industry that was working was oil and gas. And so the banks who needed to make fees had to lend to a business that was working. And at the time, the only business that was working was ours. So hundreds of billions of dollars were poured into investments in our industry. And so at 2014, when oil crashed from the north of 100 a barrel to 35, all these companies that had been built on $100 prices, all these service companies that had been serving companies in assets that shouldn't be drilled at 35, but at 100 look good, all of a sudden imploded. And what we've seen since 2014, as you alluded to, was a structural demise of the industry, but we never restructured the debt. And so 2014 and 15 were bad. 2016 felt better. If people remember when Oxy announced the merger with Anadarko in April of 2019, a lot of people forget oil was $73 a barrel that week. We
0: can't remember that far back.
2: And so (laughs) there was this, this, what felt like oil was going to be 60 to 70, the Permian and with technology and with what, what service companies had done to help make this work. The Permian was the basin that mattered. For the oil and Marcellus was for gas, and things looked pretty good. And then COVID hit, and COVID structured demand so that the world uses 100 million barrels a day of crude. And within a week, the world was using 65 million barrels of crude. So for all the environmentalists, they're like, oh, we need to wean off oil. When the world doesn't work, 35 million barrels of oil went away and think about what the world was like in March and April. No one was traveling. No one was going out. No one was buying product. No one was making product. The world needs oil. But because of all of that inventory for 45 days, 35 million barrels a day were produced with nowhere to go. And so now we have this overhang of inventory. And so the reason prices haven't responded to where people would like to see them then they're 40 is because there's all this oil that every time oil goes up, someone takes a super tanker and sells it into the market. So that's 2 million barrels of new oil and the price goes down. And so we've seen this range between 35 and 40. And until that overhang goes away, it's going to be very tough for our industry and for service companies and for everyone. But the core was debt, which is why Mm -hmm. I stay awake at night at night when the Fed reserve is printing debt, they're printing money and debt comes home to roost eventually, and it looks like the 2020 crash in oil. That's what happens. So that's what we're doing to our country, but in the oil and gas world, that's why we're here.
1: Sure. So, I mean, when you were running at an operator, how vital was it for like oil field service companies? Like, was it important for you to look at their balance sheets and to see how financially secured they were? Like, Talk a little bit about how you view oil field service companies like from that perspective.
2: Yeah, I mean, for, for us, obviously, they need to be able to deliver a high quality product and service cost effectively. Now, you know, in, in service companies, a lot of people will know this because it's the oil field companies that are paying. You guys were more worried about our credit than we were worried about your credit. As long as you showed up, then you'd send us a bill and we'd say, we'll pay you in 30 days, maybe. And then sometimes it would stretch to sixty, and then sometimes to ninety, and then the company would go bankrupt. And then everyone's like, "Well, shit." So, did we look at the the balance sheets? I mean, of course, but that was sort of governed more by the MSA and the quality of service, the quality of personnel, the technology they were evolving. Those were far more important choices than was the balance sheet.
0: Gotcha. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I certainly see it, see it the same way when. We had a competitor that went bankrupt and it seemed the, the bigger companies that were using them were the ones who were probably the most upset. And it was simply because of the processes required to qualify a new vendor and supply chain sort of, you know, in their frustration and that sort of thing. But it wasn't, we need to make sure that your numbers are really good before we'll work with you. And so I just, I find it interesting that we're more worried about getting paid, of course, but the converse side is, is certainly not the same. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, David, with, with respect to the areas, now we, we've mentioned Permian. Obviously, that's something that's been kind of helped keep us alive, if you will. If a service company is, is kind of picking and choosing or looking in the, into the future, I mean, any thoughts on where they should be, like, not necessarily hanging their hat, but what areas, like if you had to pick the top three moving forward, where are good positions to be in geographically here in the lower forty-eight? Yeah, so,
2: so again, I, I always come back to scope and scale. And the reason that, you know, Google and Facebook and there's, these are interesting companies to people is because the market's growing and there's billions of people that use the product. So you got to fish where the fish are. Now, in the Permian, and in, in, in particular, the Delaware, it was the most lightly drilled horizontal basin and the largest coming into 2020. And so the Eagleford has generally been drilled up. And so, you know, companies will talk about inventory, but the core issue, and I gave a speech in 2014, the core issue with operators was you only have 10,000 acres and that 10,000 acres holds a certain amount of oil. And that oil has a certain recovery factor. And we can talk about that if you want, but you can only drill so many wells. And what companies realized is when they weren't buying more land, they were depleting their inventory. And so instead of telling investors, we only have 100 locations to drill on our 10,000 acres, and we drilled 20 last year, we only have 80 left. Companies and management in particular were saying, well, what if we drilled more wells on that 10,000 acres? I bet that would be good. So instead of them depleting inventory, they started drilling wells between wells so that they would drill 20 and then say, well, actually, we have 150. But they didn't add any new land. They didn't add any new technology. And there's only so much oil that can be recovered and gas. And so the core issue was we were drilling too close. Now, so then when you look at that and you look at $40 oil, which is what the strip suggests is gonna be for the next five years. The Bakken has virtually no inventory left. The Eagleford has virtually no inventory left. The Barnett is not economic. So for gas, you have to be in the Marcellus because it's huge. And it's economic generally at 250. So if you want to have a career in oil and gas, you have to be working in the Marcellus if you're gas. And then if you're oil, you have to be in the Permian. And unfortunately, all the rock worth owning is owned by someone. So a lot of people say, well, DRW, you're going to go back to work. I mean, I would like to, and I would like to work in our industry. I love our industry. But if all the rock is already owned by a company, that is so financially strapped that they can't actually sell the asset for a price that I could make money on that. That means that only existing operators are going to continue to own assets and new companies currently don't have a space. So for oil filled services, that means you need to be working for the biggest companies in the only basins that matter. And that's how you can survive long enough for the oil inventory to come down and for there to be some level of normalcy in our industry.
1: So you mentioned gas. I mean, obviously, you know, looking at the EIA, they're forecasting, they seem to be, you know, pretty confident with gas going over three bucks, but then it kind of tailing off. And then, you know, they're talking about a cold winter. I mean, thoughts on gas. I mean, you mentioned the Marcellus. Where does the Haynesville kind of lie in your in your scope of thought?
2: I like it a lot, though. The U.S. does about 110 BCF a day gross gas before covid the Marcellus and, and Utica, so the, let's call it the Appalachian region, does 35 BCF a day, so roughly 30% of that. The Haynesville does about 10 BCF a day, so roughly 10% of that. And then the Permian itself does a lot because for every barrel of oil produced, you get 3,000 to 4,000 MCF. So tight oil coming out of the Permian is like 5 million barrels a day. So then, you know, there's 20 BCF a day of associated gas coming out of the parking. So the Haynesville is good, but again, you have the major players, Comstock, who bought Covey Park and a few others, but they're it's basically very tightly held. And so again, for a new player to buy it, it's just not very big. So you have to be working for the existing Haynesville players, but for sure it's 10% of the market you know, as technology and costs have come down and as the ceramic, the the market for ceramic sand really changed, there's a lot of sand, so it's cheaper. And that's obviously a high crush environment. And people are able to get away with white sand in certain cases too. With costs coming down, the Haynesville is interesting, but it's not really a growth region because it's kind of like tightly held and fully
1: deployed. Right. What about And I keep hearing buzz about conventionals and EOR. Where do you see those fitting into our future?
2: So let's, I mean, let's think about that. A lot of people, especially the Twitter EFT universe, my favorite thing they say that is actually the stupidest thing they say is conventionals are coming back. No. The reason that that we thought we were short oil and gas when I started my career in 2000 was because we'd been drilling conventional plays since like 1880. And if you look at the United States post-1973, we had been declining in production every single year in oil going back to 1973. And so then we were trying to do water floods and CO2 floods and drilling bumps. But the business was a very high cost, high risk, bad industry. And the only reason most of us have had a career for the last 15 years was because the shale revolution gave us something that was new and growth oriented and technology and horizontals and a big land rush and a land grab and banks got in there with private equity and everything went crazy. But we've now played that out. And so where do I see EOR? If oil ever goes to 80, and it will one day, if oil is at 80 or 90, maybe EOR would work on some of these wells. But at 35 and 40, there's oil in Saudi Arabia, Iran, Libya, Norway, Guyana, Suriname, everywhere in the world that is cheaper than EOR oil that we could produce in the United States. And so the laws of the market will just not allow us to invest in that technology until price comes up far enough which means we've produced all of the world's 40, 50, 60, 70, $80 oil and then that'll be a thing. So once the world gets scared we don't have enough oil but if you if you listen to the environmentalists we can move totally to wind and solar, we don't need any oil. In fact, everyone should be off oil. And if we do that, then how do we get to a world where we need more oil? Like if you ask people 20 years ago, if we'd ever get to 100 million barrels a day of demand, they would be like, you're crazy. That's just never, ever, ever going to happen. So those are the dynamics at play and why I don't really see EOR. And I certainly don't see conventional as a business. Could a family office in Kansas drill some bumps? Sure. But can Exxon go make a business? Can any company raise money around conventional? No, nah, it's mom and pop stuff, right? I think on
0: the EOR the ER point, it's interesting just, you know, the conversation that SPE Magazine, Journal Petroleum Technology, for any of our, our listeners out there, you know, they did a, an article probably, I don't know, I would say it was about a year ago, talking about how all of these unconventional companies were testing EOR, particularly the Eagleford, what stages they were in the trials and that sort of thing. And then fairly recently, there was a follow-up article explicitly about one operator saying they were walking away from it. And I think they even published a paper with kind of their findings and that the economics aren't there with, you know, our conditions. It's not worth spending the money. Well,
2: think about it just so if all of the oil and and this is a true statement, the recovery factor from solution gas drive. So if you think about a can of Coke, so this is the reservoir engineering of what we do. If you shake up a can of Coke and open it, you're going to get sprayed. But do you get sprayed with 100 percent of the Coke. No, you get sprayed with about 10 percent of the Coke. And the reason is because the gas bubbles are expanding once you reduce the pressure on the aluminum can. That's what's going on in the reservoir. So solution gas drive, which is the primary mechanism for the production of all of these basins is approximately 10% of the oil in place. EOR is then trying to go in and add artificial secondary recovery. So with a can of Coke, if I tip it over like this, that secondary recovery, I can get more. So they've been studying, injecting gas and miscibility and adding pressure and adding water. But think about the mechanism of what fracturing does. Fracturing doesn't make the rock better. It makes it like a super highway. And you crack the shit out of it. And no one knows where those fracks are going. They go everywhere. They hit wells beside you. They hit it's it's, you know, my favorite term that made no sense from 2009, 10, 11, when we were doing this was the rubbleization of rock. We're fracking, we're rubbleizing it. Okay, so we're rubbleizing very tight rock, and now you wanna go inject gas and water into the cracks, and you think you're gonna impact the rock that you didn't rubbleize? No. So, of course, the mechanism doesn't make any sense. But in order to do it, even if you're stripping a little bit, you need such high oil prices to justify the compressors, the pumps, the corrosion, the infrastructure, everything, which is why I say it's like an $80 game. It's not, you know, and for EOG, it makes total sense. EOG will be one of the last companies standing because their balance sheet is so good. Pioneer, unless they get bought, Pioneer will be one of the last companies standing and they have huge assets. And at some point in the next 50 years, Maybe oil's 80 and they have to figure something out, so it's worth testing, but it's not going to happen in our career lifetime, in my opinion. So I'm not at all surprised by what what companies walking away from you are at this
0: point. And I I guess tying into another one of your comments, you know, I have a few friends and, and we talk about, you know, engineering, understanding, as you've mentioned, like a lot of these issues aren't as simple as, oh, we'll just use solar panels. Like it's that easy. We'd have done it already if it was that simple. And like you said, everything has a trade-off, and in fact, these conversations are you know the reason no one's fixed it is it's complicated, besides all the other noise. And you know when we talk about about green energy and, and that sort of thing, I guess I was just curious, you know you hear the money moving towards a lot of that stuff because it's attractive, and my investment friends say, "Well, it's attractive, I just can't make any money off of it short of the fees, which sort of ties back into. Because so many people seem to accept the notion that, oh, yeah, we'll just we'll get a couple of, you know, wind farms and fix all this with with a few battery powered cars. Do you see another wave of possibly financial mismanagement and kind of kind of something that brings us all back to reality? I mean, so so, Matt, yes,
2: and also no. And, and I, so I think COVID to me was probably the biggest single event that people should sit back and think about and say, do I really understand the world in which I live? And by that, I mean economics, finance, and money. If you ask most of your friends, do most people manage their own money? Do most people know what's in their 401k? Do most people know how to value a company, read a balance sheet, or or understand what the role of the Fed is, what printing money does, and how the economy works? The general answer, and and so I'd ask listeners to just think about that, do you truly understand it? The answer is probably not, which means that a whole bunch of people who have a whole bunch of money give their money to people in New York. Those people can only make money by spending your money, and then they make fees. Their whole business model is how do we move Matthew McConaughey and Leonardo DiCaprio have the greatest scene in a movie in The Wolf of Wall Street where matthew mcconaughey's like we'll see what we do is if the stock goes from 10 to 20 i don't care because i'm just going to sell that stock i'm not going to let the client have their money and go spend it on something else i'm going to take that money i'm going to put it over here and then it's going to go and then i'm going to get fees and then i'm going to go from here i'm going to put it here and it's going to go and then if it goes to zero i don't care because i've already been paid so what do i care And then he starts beating his chest and, oh, I remember that. (laughs) Great, great scene worth watching. And that's the way the world works. So will there always be fraud? Yes. But look at Tesla. Tesla is a car company. Toyota sells 10 million cars a year. Tesla sells 500,000. Tesla makes profit selling carbon credits to other car companies. That is the only way they make a profit. They don't make profit selling cars. They trade at $350 billion, which is larger than all of the other car companies combined. And they have 25 billion in revenue, which means they trade at 13 times revenue. It is unbelievable. And yet people still buy Tesla. And then people say, well, I'm betting on Elon's brain." because it's not a car company. It's a battery. It's a growth. It's a tech. It's a AI. No, it's a fucking car company. And it's now worth $350 billion, but people continue to buy it.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's one of those, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've had similar conversations with friends, maybe not with as much colorful language, but there was certainly some involved. And I mean, it goes to know, I, I think goes to show, I guess, how, how, So much of this riding the way, we're we're either uninformed either because it's, I mean, for me, sometimes it's too complicated to understand. Other times I don't take the time, but at the end of the day, there there are people that do or, and, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they might not have your best interests in mind.
2: It's all about money. So the green, the answer to the green is it's all about money. They want, they want to invest $2.5 trillion in new infrastructure. And you can imagine that the profit margin on that is going to be 40%. So someone is going to make a trillion dollars, just like Jeff Bezos did with with Amazon and and like Mark Zuckerberg did with Facebook. So number one, someone is going to make a trillion dollars. And when there's a trillion dollars, there's a lot of politicians that you're going to put money in their campaigns so they get reelected, so they can do book tours and then they can be rich. So that's number one. And number two, carbon taxes are not really about reducing consumption, they're about another market where people can buy and speculate on things. So you're creating another commodity market that someone will control and make trillions of dollars. So like, make no mistake, if we truly wanted to solve climate change, 74% of the coal-fired generation, electrical generation in the world is in Asia. Coal is worse as a CO2 polluter than any other thing we do to make power. We should be installing wind and solar and natural gas-fired plants in China. But Greta doesn't go to China. American companies don't go to China because we can't control the market there, and we won't make any money. So we focus on the U.S. and everything we're doing. Livestock creates 14.5% of the world's CO2 emissions. Why don't we have vegetarian Wednesdays? Well, because farmers would get upset because we wouldn't be killing 9 billion chickens a year and the meat industry is a real thing. So we don't really want to solve climate change. We want to create markets for people to make money.
1: Yeah, so talking about making money, let's talk <laughs> BP a little bit. And by that I'm referring to, you know, they've come out and they make a strong stance on investing more in renewables while slowly scaling back on fossil fuel production. I mean, they recently came out and said they plan on cutting 40% of uh, their production by 2030 to help meet its net zero emission goals. And then they want to invest $5 billion per year on renewables. I mean, where's their business model? And where, do they actually think that the yields on what they're doing and while scaling back fossil fuels is good? Or like, what are they trying to, what do you think their ultimate objective is other than like being good stewards of the industry and filing, you know, and, and following the Paris Agreement and, and being that world? Like, what do you think about that? So, I mean, I think that
2: to understand that, you have to understand Europe. And Europe is much more concerned about climate change than we are. They have much higher gas taxes, you know, Germany, France, like, and, and there's an entirely different dynamic than is the US, but BP lives in that world. Now, what is my view? And someone said this when I did my MBA, and at the time I laughed, I wrote about it in my book, but his view was companies should exist until someone else does it better, and then they should die. That is the creative process. BP is not known as a particularly good operator. BP's stock has fallen dramatically every single year, going back as long as either of us could remember. Basically, Macondo in 2010 or 8 or whenever that was. So BP isn't really a good oil company. And somehow they're going to take the cash they generate there to become another company that arguably they're not going to be very good at either. And so shareholders are going to let this company like squander their money on different investments. Maybe BP will figure out how to be a great wind and solar company. But my view is a wind and solar company is probably going to be the best wind and solar company. And so BP should die. It should sell its assets and have those assets be managed by someone who can do it better. And then a wind company or solar or whatever should do what it does best. Like Amazon was the best online retailer. That's why it's the biggest. Wasn't the first, won't be the last, but it's sure the biggest because it's the best and most efficient. So in oil, the stage that we're gonna go into is the destructive phase where bad companies are destroyed and broken up and good companies take those assets and do better with them. I don't think BP has a chance at a better business model. So I would not be a shareholder in them. And I don't truly know what their management is doing. But again, I don't run
1: that company. Sure. <laughs> I hear you. Well, let's bring it something a little bit more closer to home here. You know, pre-COVID, you know, the big three letters was something of a hot topic. ESG, it slowly went away. I'm starting to see more on it now. You know, and the, the challenge is always, well, how do we measure it? And, you know, investors aren't going to, you know, continue to throw money at companies without a good ESG program. Is that something that, I mean, out of the three letters, where do you see the, the actual challenge or, or the problem with it? And, and by that, I mean, do then service companies, I mean, you're starting to see, I think, you know, a lot of the big service companies sort of following suit. Is that something that's going to continue to sort of be a priority, do you think? And, and how do companies facilitate that change?
2: So, I mean, I think
1: this is the way I, I have a couple
2: answers for that. So ESG, Environment, Social Responsibility, Governance. Clearly, we've seen a lot in the world from the E, and we've seen a lot from the S. And so companies will come out with their sustainability reports, and they'll do these great studies, and they're amazing, and they hire consultants, and the management team has meetings, and they talk about it. But we all know we produce a product that people put in their cars and burn. The United States burns 20 million barrels a day of oil. And of that, 70% is transportation. So sure, the oil company can produce it a little bit more economically, like more environmentally responsibly, but it's the driver of the car that's actually creating all of the emissions. And so do investors really care about oil and gas companies with the E and the S? I believe it's a G problem. And the G problem, I will give two examples. Number one, the day before... Anadarko accepted a takeover offer, they changed the executive compensation for the top members of that team, and they ended up getting, if my recollection serves, $300 million for their great work. Now, one could say, given that they sold Anadarko at $73 a share, and today if it existed as a standalone company, it would be worth probably ten maybe they deserve the 300 million dollars because they were very very bright and they sold the company and saved shareholders but the fact that the anadarko board approved that change in compensation before a takeover and took 300 million dollars worth of value out of anadarko shareholders pockets and put it in the pockets of management makes it a g problem brad holly a friend of mine i've worked with him in anadarko A lot of people say a lot of things. I really like him. His board, four days before bankruptcy, gave him and his management team, but him in particular, a $6.4 million bonus. And the explanation was, he is so essential to the ongoing of the company, he must be paid this. The board approved it. They then went into bankruptcy. Creditors took that company over, and within four months, He was terminated because he wasn't that important, got a $2 million severance package, and they brought in a new CEO. I've just given two G examples that is the reason our industry is so hated. Now, every industry has the same issues, but this in particular, at a time when share prices like Chesapeake have gone down 99.9% and the senior executive CEO took $100 million out of that company for that performance, is crazy. The last reason we're not getting investors back is, fundamentally, every oil and gas company in the United States is overvalued. And remember when I told you bankers only care about money? If they could sell their grandma for a nickel, they would. So if they thought that they could make money in oil and gas, they would. But they can't buy stock because all of the stocks are so overvalued, they're going to go down. And so that's why we don't have any investors and it has nothing to do with esng though it does give management a lot of things to talk about that aren't their falling stock price
1: do you see the same problem on the service side
2: i mean on the service side again because you guys are trying to get work from these companies that they, there will be a selection so for example you remember when the, the electric frac fleets We're going because people were trying to reduce emissions, especially in Colorado. So I think an electric frack fleet was $60 million to build versus like a hydrocarbon, like reciprocal pump. One was was like 24. But companies felt like if I make this investment, a company like EOG might use me because my emissions are lower. So they would do that on the margin. But again, it's the companies that make the product, so they're the ones who create the emissions through production, but it's the consumer that makes the emissions through everything they do every day. And so, again, I don't see ESG as anything more than fluff, where management can give themselves a pat on the back and have meetings about ESG. I just don't see, that's not important. It's just, to me. Now, public companies can't come out and say this, and everyone say, oh, David's being bad. It is not important making money is the purpose of an organization. So this social justice, wear a t-shirt bullshit, they're only doing it so customers will choose to go there over somewhere else. And they think that the business model of letting people wear Black Lives Matter t-shirts at Starbucks will bring more people in to the store than it will have them not go to the store. But if you look at the NBA, and their very pronounced social justice campaign and the ratings of the NBA playoffs, one would suggest that sports fans just want to watch sports. And I Mm. would suspect that their social justice shit on the court and on the jerseys and all the things is going to go away because otherwise fans aren't going to pay
0: and LeBron ain't going to make $100 million. Yeah, they just said actually that they were going to next year keep it off the court. I can't remember how they expressed it. Right, so shocking. So we're, we're really
2: interested in social justice, except we're actually really busy, interested in making money. And so when social justice doesn't pay the bills, we're gonna go back to playing
0: basketball because that's what people are paying for. Right. Well, speaking of paying for things, David, I bought your book and I really enjoyed it. And I had some follow-up questions on it just because one thing I really appreciated is you don't have to be a guru of any kind. The language is just candid. It gives some great advice on, you know, almost like a memoir on on just life experiences, ways you can learn lessons. And especially I think folks in business, you know, what they quote unquote teach you in MBA school or, or what have you. I don't have an MBA, but I have lots of friends who have and just kind of the cold hard truth of some realities. And anyways, I guess, is there anything with respect to your book, do you you feel like, I know you've made some updates, but do you feel like anything in your philosophy has changed since the latest and greatest or anything you wish you could add or maybe even take away?
2: So I made a very distinct choice because as you know, I wrote that book in 2012 and 2013 as part of my journey. And I think that people who might follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter or or like people see different sides of me. Clearly on Twitter, I'm more combative. Because there's a lot of anonymous people that come at me and I just, I like to fight apparently. On LinkedIn, it was more of an education platform. The book was a very candid journey and those were the lessons I learned through there. So I stand by them. What do I wish that I had done earlier in my career that would have made me more effective? I wish I'd hosted a podcast. And if I were to run an MBA class, the class would be on listening. And as you guys know from hosting a show and I know from hosting a show is that the most interesting conversations is not when you're waiting to talk, which I would, I would admit in my career, I knew what the vision was. I knew what we were going to do. I knew what we were going to buy. I knew what it was worth. And I didn't really care. Like I was like, we're just going to go there. So I wasn't like getting input a lot of times the podcast. You have to listen and digest and pull themes out and truly understand what people are saying, that's not more collaboration, that's more learning. And so for me, I wish I had done a podcast earlier because it's made me a much better listener. But I would say all the lessons in that book really stand. I think I had the 11 points in the elevator speech and they were all they were all true. And I, I feel very blessed I was able to be successful. All of the lessons in there were the reasons that I had success. But you have to keep a lot of shots on goal. And this is my... In my office. That's my motto.
1: Nice. (laughs) That sounds true. And I know, I'm sure you probably preach that to your kids every day.
2: Yep. Never, never, never give up. You got to be in the game to get the win. And you can get your face beat in a lot of times. And like again, on EFT, and and my my favorite is well, you've only had one win. You're so lucky. Well, I've had one and you've had none. So, okay. (laughs) Also, I was in the industry for 20 years and I took a lot of shots. And, and I'm also smart enough to know that right now the environment is not conducive enough for me to risk taking a whole bunch of my own personal net worth to go do it again to prove that I can do it again. Because the environment is totally different. And, and as I've told, told many people, I am short E&P for the reasons we described. So assuming that I'm correct, then that would be my second win. Was that structurally identified that it was a money loser, not a money maker. I bet on the losing and I made my second win by being short the industry that I love because it isn't working right now. So, but anyway, those that would be the expansion of the book. But Matt, no, I I stand by it and and I I like your content. It's a journey. It was a journey for me. And it was whatever came to my mind, I say.
0: Oh, I know one of your hot take of the day post recently was to one of your bosses. You changed changed the names of everybody but it was just kind of cool to get even a little more context and especially you know, I'm 15 years in my career and you kind of start remembering those people that were you know just very influential in the way you think or the way you see things and people maybe you wish you would have met earlier or you were too dumb to listen to them by then so you're glad the timing worked out and so it's just it's cool to see that chronicle and, and it's very relatable and I, I think one thing I liked is that I felt maybe you didn't explicitly you sort of explicitly say it is Kind of calling out, you know, being candid with yourself and with other people, realizing that you can kind of talk yourself into a career move that's sort of an illusion and lo and behold, realize it's just a bad fit from the beginning. And I think that was one thing I'd experienced in my, you know, the previous employer. And I love kind of the candor and the reality I have here. So it's just, I don't know, very relatable book. Everyone is different,
2: but self-awareness is the number one key to being a good leader and knowing where you are in your career. Because self-awareness leads to authenticity and authenticity. People might not like me. I don't care if they like me. I don't care if you agree with everything I say. You probably shouldn't. But everyone knows that everything I say, I am saying from my heart and I am saying with zero fucks given around what people think about it. That is my character. That's how I deal with it. And that's how I go through life. And you, you mentioned the boss. So yeah, I did come out last week with a hot take and, and that boss was Shane Frost, who a lot of people know in industry. He was with Anadarko for a very, very long time, moved over to Whiting. Obviously the reason was he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And I don't know, I don't know the prognosis, but I don't think it's long. And I also, as you probably know, we had a very good family friend who was 47. She was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and was given 12 months to live and she died two weeks ago. And so in the grand scheme of life, Career is very important because you can make money, but it's the impact that you have on people and the community and the people around you and the lessons that you learn and the way you enjoy that and the birds and the sun, as one friend says, that matter. And so I learned, I I treated my career like I was a professional athlete and I wanted to be the best. And so I think I got to be the best. There's some that are really good, but for what I did and for what I was in the industry, I think I was the best, so I'm, I'm happy with that, and now I've retired, but it was the people that I met along the way that gave me all the joy, and, and I, I wish I had stopped and taken, maybe smelled the roses a little bit more along the way, because I probably would have ended up getting there faster if I'd been a little bit more self-aware.
1: And I think that's a great spot to close yeah. with, man. I mean, I, I don't think you could top that. So, man, it's been an absolute pleasure. I want to respect your time. I would say if people want to get to know more about you, get on LinkedIn, but not right now. <laughs> obviously, you know, so, but no, tell the listeners because you have obviously the website, the newsletter each day or, you know, the commentary. So just give a quick plug on. Yeah, on- so just,
2: just if you want to follow me, obviously LinkedIn deplatform me, which is on the website as to why. But you can go to www.hottakeoftheday.com. All my contact information's on there. All the historic articles I've written over the last two years. The podcast, we're on episode 76 or so. We've had some great guests. So you can check that out and and just stay in touch and and check out the book and and all that stuff. But guys, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. And to your listeners, you know, my goal is to be helpful. And so to the extent that I can be helpful in helping explain things that you might not understand, I might not understand them either, but I'll sure try. So please reach out and connect and let me know how I can help
1: you. Awesome. Well, David, it's an absolute pleasure. Keep doing what you're doing. For all the listeners out there, appreciate the support. Please subscribe and leave a review. And with that being said, take care, everyone. Thanks. See you take
0: boys. care. Thanks, DRW. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.